Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are very excited to bring you the news. Uh, Derek, let's start with Gaza. In particular, let's talk about potential ceasefire talks. Uh, yes, there's apparently a new round of talks going on in Paris. Uh, it's gotten serious enough that uh, the Israeli government, which had sworn off uh, the peace talks that were previ- the previous round of peace talks in Cairo, Uh, is sending uh, a team, uh, this is according to uh, Israeli media, uh, they are sending a negotiating team to Paris to participate in these talks, which, uh, as usual, include uh, Egypt, Qatar, the United States. Uh, Hamas is participating indirectly. The uh, political uh, leader of Hamas, Ismail Haniya, has been in Egypt uh, apparently, you know, kind of filtering uh, through the Egyptian government, which indicates that things must be at a relatively advanced place. Otherwise, uh, you know, they would not have presumably would not have engaged him in the process. Uh, so I guess this is a positive sign. I don't know. Things got so close to a, a ceasefire deal in the, the previous round when there were actual offers being traded and uh, right up until the point where Hamas made its counteroffer and the Israelis said, screw that, we're just going to uh, keep annihilating the place. Uh, so I have a hard time getting too uh, worked up about this, uh, frankly, until it, it actually produces something. But it is some movement. And given the situation in Gaza where everybody's sort of waiting on pins and needles for the eventual Israeli military assault, ground assault on Rafa. Um, there's really nothing else to hope for in terms of forestalling that uh, other than uh, a ceasefire agreement. And, and even that wouldn't, uh, if you listen to the Israelis, wouldn't completely take the, the Rafa operation off the table. It would simply uh, delay it for a, a period of time. Certainly, there's nothing that's going to happen at the UN Security Council where the United States uh, on on Tuesday, rather, on Tuesday, vetoed, you guessed it, another ceasefire resolution in the Security Council, arguing in logic that uh, uh, only makes sense to people in the U.S. government that the ceasefire resolution would actually undermine efforts to achieve a ceasefire. Uh, don't ask me to explain that. That was the administration's logic. We are extremely disappointed. The Palestinian ambassador to the UN said the veto's message to Israel, in his words, is to continue to get away with murder. They have put forward a, an alternative resolution uh, that is supposed to call for uh, a temporary ceasefire, but only at the Israeli government's earliest convenience and not before. Uh, that, But it also does, in plain text, uh, oppose a, an Israeli move into Rafah, which is, you know, both kind of as as milk toast as you can get in a statement like this, but uh, also is probably the most pointed international statement the United States has made about the the Israeli operation in Gaza to date. It's unclear whether that resolution, this U.S. drafted alternative, is going to come to a vote in the council. I suspect that. Uh, what the Biden administration is doing here in putting forward 
a draft resolution is it's trying to send a not so subtle message to the Israeli government to get involved again in these talks uh, and agree to a negotiated ceasefire and forestall the the possibility uh, of this resolution or coming to a vote or, or make it superfluous. Uh, there's a pretty reasonable chance that if it does come to a vote, it will be vetoed by Russia and or China. Uh, that would also probably uh, be something the Biden administration could live with because then they could point fingers somewhere else and say, look, here's the real obstructionist. It's not us. Uh, of course, that's horseshit, but they, they would probably go with that, I think, uh, in the uh, the interest of trying to salvage some tattered remnant of the United States uh, international goodwill here. Derek, thank you. Uh, could you also just give us an update about what's going on in Gaza itself? Yeah, I mean, as I said, things are kind of in a in a holding pattern while we wait to see if slash when the Israelis move into Rafah on the ground. Uh, they've maintained their their operation in Khan Yunus for you know the couple of weeks now. They have been attacking uh, at least a couple of times Nasser Hospital, which is the largest hospital in Khan Yunus and the largest hospital that's still at least to some degree, operating in all of the, the, the territory of Gaza. The, they raided it uh, once several days ago. They then kind of pulled out of the hospital, but I, I've seen reports. Uh, I haven't dug into them, but I've seen reports uh, just before we recorded this that they had raided the facility again. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know what it is that they think that uh, a second raid will accomplish, but there have been uh, you know, outcries from... Uh, Doctors Without Borders from, you know, all the all the same groups that have been crying out every time the Israelis have attacked the hospital that they're, you know, they're they're threatening the lives of patients, they're threatening the lives of doctors, they're threatening the lives of displaced people who go to these facilities uh, to try and escape uh, what they think will provide an escape from uh, from the violence. So all of that is still going on. Uh, one new wrinkle uh, that's been reported this week, uh, there was a couple of new wrinkles, actually. One is the the Israeli military is, is ordering new evacuations in the north of Gaza, in Gaza City, uh, where you may recall uh, a month and a half ago, they said they had, they declared mission accomplished and said they were moving on. Uh, apparently, mission not accomplished. Apparently, the militants, Hamas and others are, are if they did leave Gaza City at all, they are filtering back into that area, uh, supposedly, and, and launching, you know, rocket attacks and other other sorts of things. The IDF is also, and this is the other thing that was reported this week, and, and maybe corresponds with these evacuations in Gaza City uh, a bit. Uh, it is building, uh, it is almost built at this point, I think, but, but is, is still uh, a bit under construction, a road uh, that runs just south of Gaza City. It's a gravel road. It's meant to look temporary, at least. I don't know about whether it will be temporary. But it is supposed to provide the, the Israeli military with easy access into Gaza. It cuts all the way to the sea. It cuts off Gaza City uh, from the rest of the territory. It could be used uh, to displace uh, the... And there are still you know, estimates of 300,000 maybe uh, people still in Gaza City, despite all the destruction and the evacuations that have already taken place, uh, it could be used to further depopulate that region and then prevent people from going back. Uh, certainly, it indicates a long-term, uh, uh, some long-term Israeli intent to to occupy uh, the territory again uh, in a direct way. 
Um, and uh, it's been done in, as you probably are not surprised to hear, the most destructive manner possible, taking down a number of uh, structures that were, of course, most of them probably already damaged, uh, but have now been taken out completely to make room for this road. Uh, for the Israeli military to use, so uh, all kind of uh, terrible things, but uh, that's that's where things are, are are at. Let's talk about the United States's assessment of the UNRWA allegations. Yeah, this was reported uh, by the Wall Street Journal actually on uh, Wednesday. Uh, it got a, it's gotten a lot of play uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, there's an, a U.S. intelligence estimate uh, of the Israeli accusations toward the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which, uh, you know, people are, are familiar. They've accused a- at least 12 employees of the agency of participating directly in the October 7th attacks in, in southern Israel. Uh, they've also alleged that something like 10% of UNRWA's uh, staff have some affiliation with Hamas or uh, Islamic Jihad. Um, it's And so, you know, they've made these allegations and the United States and a number of other Western countries uh, just on basically the Israeli government's good word suspended funding for uh, UNRWA as a result of these allegations. So now the, the J- Wall Street Journal reported, as I said on Wednesday, the, uh, this uh, U.S. intelligence estimate finds that uh, we can take these in two parts. The allegation about the 12 employee staff members who participated in October 7th, it's, it, it's found this plausible with a low degree of confidence. Now, uh, I think people read these intelligence estimates and, and see low confidence and think, oh, well, that means uh, the U.S. doesn't believe that, that this is true. What it means is the intelligence community believes it's true but can't really support it independently, so they just are going on, uh, again, the Israeli government's word, but they find it to be at least credible. Uh, they have found no uh, evidence. They can't say anything uh, about the claim of 10% of all the, the agency's staffers uh, having some affiliation with Hamas or, or uh, other militant groups. Uh, so that part seems to be uh, really out, uh, out there, uh, at least according to U.S. intelligence. What this the journal article says that's really uh, troubling, I guess, if you care about the humanitarian situation in Gaza, is that uh, the U.S. has apparently asked Israel to provide the raw intelligence that they use to make these allegations on which they base these allegations. And the Israelis have been have refused to do that. Now, this should send up huge red flags. Uh, blaring sirens and red flashing lights for anybody who uh, is interested in this story. But apparently it didn't do that for anybody in the Biden administration uh, because they went ahead and suspended aid anyway. And it's galling, uh, it would be galling under any circumstances, but particularly galling because UNRWA is the primary aid agency in Gaza. Uh, It is the only agency that has the capacity, and this has been reinforced by a number of other aid groups that operate in Gaza but depend on UNRWA's staff, its its infrastructure, uh, to distribute aid to people. It is the only group that's able to do this in Gaza. Now, could you stand up another group to do the same job? Sure, but not in the middle of a war. So the decision to suspend funding to this group, which was apparently made, again, just because the Israeli government said so, uh, is uh, you know is a disastrous decision for people who desperately need aid, and there is no alternative to UNRWA. There's nothing that, that you're going to do in the middle of this conflict to replace it, and so it's just all a giant 
shit show and I, I apologize for the language. I forgive you, Derek, but don't let it happen again. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, let's talk about Yemen and the Houthis potentially sinking this cargo ship. Yeah, they uh, over the weekend, the Houthis uh, attacked a cargo vessel called the Ruby Mar and apparently damaged it severely enough that the crew was forced to evacuate. Uh, they were forced to abandon ship. It is now listing. The Houthis at one point uh, claimed uh, either that it was about to sink or that it had sunk. It is still listing in the Gulf of uh, Aden. And it looks like it is you know, on the verge of sinking if you see any photographs of it. Uh, this is the the most serious uh, attack that, that they've undertaken to date against shipping in the Red Sea region, uh, in terms at least of its effect. Now there are some plans under consideration to try to salvage this ship. I don't think it can be sailed, certainly, but it could be uh, towed uh, to a nearby port, probably in uh, the Horn of Africa in Djibouti, uh, to uh, try to effect repairs or at least to get it, you know, out of the Gulf of Aden, uh, where a, a shipwreck would presumably be uh, quite damaging environmentally and, and in other ways. Uh, so there are some some efforts under consideration there. And so far, there's no sign of any slowdown in Houthi attacks. On Monday, they said they'd shot down a U.S. drone and a U.S.-owned cargo ship reported coming under missile fire requesting military assistance. The Houthis, uh, in the meantime, uh, have been quite active over the last few days. They've uh, attacked another cargo ship uh, on Thursday, I believe, and set it on fire. Uh, I don't think it's been as, as badly damaged as the, the Ruby Mar, although this has just happened, so we don't really know yet. Um, they uh, reportedly uh, fired missiles at uh, Eilat, the, the Israeli port city uh, that the Israelis had to intercept. Uh, they have fired a number of drones. This is according to uh, ABC. They number, fired a number of drones at U.S. warships and other uh, warships in the region. Uh, but other than all of that, uh, Danny, as you re recall, the United States fully deterred the Houthis uh, several weeks ago with its airstrikes. Uh, and you know, I'm, uh, they're, they're definitely, they're definitely deterred. I mean, we can see from all this activity, they, they're, they're, they've been cowed. They're, they're not uh, doing anything now. Well, thank God. God bless America. Uh, let's talk about Pakistan and we should have a special coming out on the Pakistani election today or tomorrow, but Derek, why don't you just give a very brief overview of what has just happened? Yeah, the, I mean, we talked about this earlier. I don't want to spend too much uh, time on it, but the two uh, parties that quote unquote won, uh, the uh, general election earlier this month, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz and the Pakistan People's Party uh, finished first and second. Technically, they uh, had already agreed in principle to to a coalition deal. They made that official on Tuesday. Uh, uh, Shahbaz Sharif, the brother of PMLN founder Nawaz Sharif uh, and a former prime minister uh, in his own right, uh, is that it will be their candidate for for prime minister now. Uh, they should have a, a comfortable majority unofficially. You know, I've seen media outlets give them those two parties and four smaller parties, give them a, a, something like 265 maybe seats in the Pakistani National Assembly, which is, is you know, that's uh, more than enough uh, to form a government. The, the issue here, uh, as we've talked about, is that the Tehrika and Soft Party, the Pakistan Tehrika and Soft Party, which is led by imprisoned former Prime Minister Imran Khan, uh, still is still insisting that it won uh, the election and in uh, it, in the 
the most obvious sense it did. All of its candidates, however, were forced to run as independents because the Pakistani political establishment and military establishment is trying to bury PTI. Uh, and so it stripped the the party of its uh, symbol on the ballot and forced all of its candidates to run uh, as independents, which means they don't get to uh, take a share of the uh, reserved votes, which is reserved seats, rather, which is supposed to go to uh, women and uh, minority groups. And they are distributed uh, to parties. They're not distributed to independents based as, a, as on a percentage uh, basis, you know, in terms of how, how what percentage of the the vote that your your party gets, so PTI can't access those votes. They are still trying to find a way to qualify for those seats. The latest gambit, I think, is they want to join a, a party called the Sunni Ittihad Council, uh, which is extraordinarily small. Um, would be, you know, obviously essentially taken over uh, by PTI if this happened, but that depends on. Uh, you know, jumping through a lot of procedural hoops that I assume uh, Pakistani authorities will not allow them to jump through. Because again, the point of this is to keep uh, Khan's party from from coming back into power. Let's talk about uh, what's been going on between Taiwan and China over the Kinmen Islands. Yeah, there's been uh, tension uh, all week uh, since uh, late last week, in fact, over the Kinmen Islands, which is an archipelago that's uh, most of it is administered by Taipei. It's located in the Taiwan Strait. It's just a couple of miles off the the coast of China and uh, actually then some distance away from Taiwan. But nevertheless, it's uh, mostly administered by Taipei. Last week, uh, two Chinese fishermen whose uh, boat allegedly strayed into Taiwanese waters uh, were then chased by a Taiwanese Coast Guard vessel and their boat capsized. Uh, I believe there were four actually fishermen on the boat, but two of them died, uh, and so this has raised a, uh, a you know a lot of uh, consternation in in Beijing, uh, anger, and they have increased uh, what they call law enforcement operations in the Kinmen Islands or around the Kinmen Islands, uh, up to the point where earlier this week they stopped and boarded uh, a tourist boat, just like a sightseeing boat uh, from Taiwan. Uh, that was in the, the Kinmen Islands, which the Taiwanese, of course, say uh, violates their rights to that uh, that archipelago. So uh, Taipei has also uh, apparently stepped up its own security operations in the region. And, you know, none of this is this is relatively small potatoes, but all of these disputes, these these maritime disputes in particular, uh, have some potential to escalate into a bigger conflict, especially with tensions already running high after the Taiwanese election, which uh, didn't exactly go according to uh, what I think the Chinese government would have preferred. Uh, so, you know, something to one of these things that, that's just, I think, worth monitoring a little bit. There's been things happening, as there always are in Senegal. So, Derek, do you want to tell us about what's going on there with the election? Last week, uh, last week when we did our, our news uh, episode, the Senegalese Constitutional Council had just ruled that Macky Sall, President Macky Sall's decision to postpone the presidential election that was supposed to take place on February 25th, which was later rescheduled uh, for mid-December, uh, they had just ruled that it was unconstitutional. And I was sort of, you know, I, I, I had only seen the headlines there, basically, Uh what the, what the what the council ruled uh, was that, uh, yes, in, in fact, that decision was unconstitutional and uh, it ordered Saul to reschedule the election 
for the earliest opportunity, recognizing that with the delay caused by the uh, attempted postponement that February 25th was no longer realistic, uh, the court, the council sort of left it up to Saul to decide uh, when a new election could be held. Uh, on Friday, Saul responded that he would uh, abide by the council's ruling and uh, would reschedule the vote uh, for you know the earliest possible opportunity. It's now almost a week later and he hasn't rescheduled the election yet. Uh, and I think a, lo- a number of people, uh, protesters who have been, uh, you know, a- angry about the decision to postpone the election, opposition leaders who have been angry about the decision to postpone the election are starting to get antsy uh, that he has not offered a new date. Now, Saul's term ends legally on April 2nd. It could be extended. In fact, it was going to be extended through uh, the end of the year, really, uh, under this uh, postponement uh, where the election was supposed to take place in December. Uh, at this point now, it's back to legally ending on April 2nd. So one assumes if he intends to abide by the council's ruling, he will have to schedule the election sometime uh, before April 2nd so that the winner can can take office. But, you know, it's uh, every day that goes by without this happening, I think, is uh, is another day for people to, to sort of look uh, with some concern at, at the situation. Somalia has recently made some arms deals. Derek, tell us about them. Yes, uh, the Somali government announced on uh, Wednesday that it's concluded a defense agreement with Turkey. Uh, This is, uh, you know, a fairly routine thing. But in this case, uh, as we've discussed, Somalia and Ethiopia are uh, at loggerheads after the Ethiopian government cut this, uh, cut a uh, naval base uh, agreement with the unrecognized government of the Somaliland region, which considers itself independent from Somalia. Uh, The Somali government obviously does not agree with that. Uh, And so there's been a lot of kind of heated rhetoric going back and forth, a lot of uh, talk of, you know, we'll go to war before we let you do this. Uh, So the Somali government is, I think, getting its uh, part of the, the rationale is getting its ducks in a row. Uh, in case there is a conflict, in case Ethiopia were to, say, uh, recognize Somaliland's independence, which the Somali government has uh, identified as a red line, uh, it's trying to line up some allies who will support it uh, in any conflict. Now, Turkey has interests in the Horn of Africa, interests in the Red Sea. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the uh, president of Turkey, views you know, views Turkey as something of a, a let's say, thwarted uh, imperial power, regional power at least, and it has, you know, wants to build relationships and build influence and, and a presence in Africa and particularly the Red Sea region. So uh, he's definitely taking advantage of uh, this uh, Ethiopia-Somalia situation to, to, to kind of advance that project. The other thing that was uh, announced recently, the U.S. government uh, had concluded and the Somalis concluded an agreement whereby the U.S. military will build uh, upwards of as many as five new bases uh, for the Somali military. Uh, this is they will serve the special elite unit that the United States has been training within the Somali military, which is ostensibly supposed to uh, be leading the fight, I guess, uh, against al-Shabaab. Uh, the U.S. obviously sees, uh, I think increasingly actually sees Somalia, and there's a piece about this at uh, Responsible Statecraft a couple of days ago. I think the U.S. increasingly sees Somalia as a- an important potential outpost 
in a region that where the U.S. is not necessarily all that welcome anymore. I mean, you think about uh, is the U.S. going to be allowed to to keep troops in Iraq? The Iraqi government is uh, has been pushing the U.S. Uh, to the door recently because of tensions with Iran and uh, the violence that that's entailed. And so, you know, Somalia is close enough to the Middle East that it could be a, a particularly valuable uh, piece of real estate for the United States. What's also troubling here, I think, is that uh, you know, as it as it has done in many other countries across Africa, the United States is training and uh, working with this very elite, supposedly, quote unquote, uh, elite military unit. And we've seen again and again, these kinds of military units uh, wind up taking undertaking coups. Now, I'm not saying that something like that's going to happen in Somalia, but the potential is there. Uh, and the United States isn't the only country doing this. Apparently, you know, there are uh, a number of regional players, including Turkey, including Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, all of them kind of uh, building their little fiefdoms within the Somali military. And, and that's not, uh, I think, great for uh, cohesion, either at a military level or uh, national level. So all of these things are, are red flags. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to The Nation. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. Thanks, Derek. Um, so we have our bonus episode this week. We'll be with Mark Ames. And we'll be talking about Russia and Ukraine. But Derek, um, please give us a quick update on what has happened to Navalny. Yes, yeah, so Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader or Vladimir Putin critic or whatever you want to characterize him as, died on Friday. Uh, he had been transferred uh, a few weeks earlier to an Arctic penal colony. He was in prison, uh, had been in prison for several months, but uh, there was there were a lot of questions about how he was being treated and uh, his health. Uh, certainly being transferred to this uh, far-off penal colony probably did not uh, help him very much in that regard. The Russian government is officially characterizing his uh, cause of death as sudden death syndrome, uh, which is uh, got to be up there in the annals of uh, just obfuscating uh, whatever really happened to him. Uh, as I say, Navalny was unwell. He was still suffering, I think, lingering effects of his uh, Novichok poisoning in 2020, which, you know, probably, let's say, was uh, the responsibility of the Russian government um, and certainly from the effects of his imprisonment. So, uh, I, you know, I don't know that this was uh, a, 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 an explicit murder. I don't know that Vladimir Putin said, uh, you know, kill this guy today, pull the plug. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, if you want to talk about why somebody would suddenly die in a Russian prison, then uh, you got to talk about uh, the treatment that he received from the Russian government. Uh, so since Friday, there's been a, a, a few, few things uh, happening in reaction uh, Western governments, the, the UK in particular, has uh, sanctioned uh, a number of senior officials at this penal colony. Uh, the United States, to my knowledge, has not sanctioned anybody related to Navalny yet, uh, but I suspect that they will. It's going to be hard to 
kind of pull this apart because this also happens to be the second anniversary that I think we'll get into uh, of the invasion of Ukraine. So there's going to be a lot of sanctions flying around over the next couple of weeks, and uh, it'll be hard to determine which ones refer to which. The other thing that's been going on is Navalny's family, his uh, widow and his mother, have been demanding that the Russian government turn over his body. Uh, Navalny's mother, Lyudmila Navalnaya, said on Thursday, uh, according to a a number of outlets, NBC and and a number of other outlets, uh, that she had finally been uh, allowed to see Navalny's body uh, almost a week after his death, but that she's been pressured by Russian officials to agree to basically a uh, what she called a secret funeral and has been told, I guess, that if she doesn't agree to this secret funeral, whatever that entails, uh, that the Russians will dispose of his body. The Russian government will dispose of his body in some other way. Uh, so that's that promises to be a, an ongoing controversy here as well. I think. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine and uh, you. Let's talk about the second anniversary and then talk about the city that Russia has just taken. Yeah. So I mean, the second anniversary. I, I don't know what more to say here except that uh, there's there's a flurry of activity that's already taken place. The European Union uh, EU ambassadors met uh, this week and, and uh, apparently agreed in principle on a new package of sanctions. This would be the 13th uh, major round of sanctions that the EU has imposed against Russia uh, since the invasion. There's not much juice left to squeeze out of this particular stone. Uh, and so I, I think this package will just kind of expand the blacklist. It will add more names, more people, more entities to the EU sanctions list. Uh, Typically in the past, they have tried to focus each one of these kind of tranches uh, of sanctions on a particular sector of the Russian economy. So, you know, energy or minerals or, you know, uh, move down the line. But I think they're pretty much out of of, of options in that regard. So uh, I don't expect there to be a dramatic uh, development out of the sanctions package. And and it's not even clear that it will go through. I mean, the full membership has to, like the member states uh, themselves have to agree uh, to this. And and there are some, uh, uh, at least a couple EU member states, uh, thinking about Hungary in particular, who have expressed some resistance to additional uh, sanctions against Russia. You can expect the US uh, and the UK as well to impose their own second anniversary sanctions. Uh, I think the US announced some a couple of criminal cases against Russian businessmen, oligarchs, if you will, uh, on Thursday. I don't have the details on that, but that's uh, certainly meant to coincide with the the anniversary. So you can expect uh, more things like that, I think, in the uh, next few days. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk a little bit about Avdivka, the city that Russia has just taken. Yes, uh, the Russians have been after Avdivka, which is in Donetsk Oblast. They've been after it for months uh, it has been maybe the primary focus since they took Bakhmut uh, last year. Uh, there have been some other places that they've they've sort of been trying to to take, but uh, this is this seems to be the main one. Uh, they finally took it over the weekend. The Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian military, uh, called a ordered a withdrawal from the city to prevent uh, their forces from being encircled. Uh, it took the Russians a couple of days to clean out apparently a couple of last pockets of, of Ukrainian resistance, but they had done that. Uh, by Monday. Avdivka is significant strategically. It was 
close enough to the city of Donetsk, the much larger city of Donetsk, a Russian-occupied city, uh, that it, it brought Ukrainian artillery within range of Donetsk. And now they, they will not, uh, they will, you know, falling back, they, they won't be uh, in a position to, to shell Donetsk anymore, from, from there at least. No wonder towns nearby are nervous. Every day I think about the future, uh, not only this town, about uh, every town, uh, Pokrovsk, Avdiivka, Konstantinovka, uh, Dnipro, Kyiv. They may be next. Yes. It could open up some uh, some further gains uh, by the Russians, and I, I think they've they're trying to kind of uh, press the the advantage that they've gotten here a bit. But I don't know that they're going to make any major significant gains out of this, uh, at least in the short term. But but this in, in itself is a is a fairly significant. Uh, gain. It's the largest territorial uh, gain that the Russians have made since Bakhmut. Uh, there's been some disputation, uh, let's say, over the nature of the Ukrainian withdrawal. Initially, the Ukrainian military uh, insisted that it had withdrawn in good order and, and redeployed its forces into new defensive positions uh, outside of Avdivka uh, in, uh, along the, the, the same defensive line. Uh, the Russians ha- hinted in, in the days after the, the, the town, after they seized the town, uh, that the, the withdrawal had actually been much more ragged than that and that they had captured a number of Ukrainian soldiers. Well, the, the Washington Post reported on Wednesday uh, that, lo and behold, uh, the Ukrainian military story was not quite accurate and that Ukrainian officials have been telling the U.S., their U.S. counterparts uh, behind the scenes that, yeah, this was a little bit more haphazard and more hasty uh, than we let on uh, and that some number of Ukrainian soldiers were, in fact, captured. Now, the Russians claimed like a thousand Ukrainian soldiers uh, had been captured and, and they're still denying that, but they do, they have acknowledged uh, maybe a hundred, which probably means more than that, if that's you know what they're willing to tell the Americans. Uh, so uh, you know we don't have uh, the the total facts on this, but uh, some number of Ukrainian soldiers have been captured. I would say probably north of a hundred, uh, and some of them there's evidence the, that they've been uh, executed already, that they were killed uh, after being taken. But uh, you know those allegations are, are kind of flying around. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Let's stay in Europe for a second and talk about Hungary, Sweden, and NATO ratification. Yes, uh, this may be actually about to happen after uh, months and months of of delays. Uh, The last NATO member that has yet to uh, approve Sweden's membership in the club, uh, which is Hungary, uh, the uh, Hungarian ruling party, Fidesz, called for a parliamentary vote on Monday uh, on Sweden's NATO accession. Uh, presumably this means that they're ready to pass it, that Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary and the leader of Fidesz, uh, is prepared to finally allow it to, to go through. Otherwise, uh, you know, I don't know why you call the vote unless you're trying to make some kind of empty statement, which would only, I think, irritate uh, the rest of NATO and, and not really achieve much for Hungary. Uh, so I think we can presume that, that this is likely to happen on Monday. Now, Orban has been insisting that Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson come to Budapest uh, to sort of iron out whatever concerns Hungary has about Sweden or Swedish membership, which has never been entirely clear what their issue is. Uh, the, you know, I, I'm sure people uh, recall that that the Turkish government held out on this vote for a long time, uh, and there it had some specific demands in terms of. Uh, you know, treatment of, of Kurdish 
dissidents in Sweden in terms of uh, uh, Sweden's arms sales or, or uh, you know, a block on arms sales to Turkey that eventually boiled down to they wanted F-16s from the United States and there was a quid pro quo and that's uh, that's done and dusted. With Hungary, it's never been entirely clear what they want, what Orban wants. Uh, and so I'm not sure, A, why he's decided now after all this time uh, to finally allow this to go through. And I'm not sure what he wants to talk to Christensen about. But Christensen has agreed to uh, go to Hungary. I think he's going to be going to get there on Friday. And so, you know, I guess if that goes really badly, if he like walks in and, you know, spits in Orban's face or something, uh, the vote on Monday could go a different direction. But at this point, I think, uh, you know, and I know you'll be happy to hear this. I think by Monday uh, evening, maybe Tuesday, we'll be able to say that Sweden is a NATO member and the, the club is, is getting uh, one country bigger. Thank goodness. Uh, let's talk about Colombia. Yes, uh, this is uh, potentially bad news. The National Liberation Army, ELN, the largest rebel group uh, still extant in Colombia, announced on Tuesday that it's suspending its peace talks with the Colombian government. Uh, this is uh, a little strange, but I think they're concerned uh, because the government of uh, one of Colombia's departments, the Nariño Department, uh, is apparently planning to hold its own peace talks outside of the framework of these uh, national talks with the central ELN leadership. Uh, they're, they're planning to hold their own peace talks with ELN fighters in that particular region. Now, ELN is not the most cohesive organization. It does have a central leadership cadre, uh, but units on the ground tend to operate somewhat autonomously. And so I think that there, there's there's some concern that uh, those peace talks could you know, kind of peel fighters away from the organization and weaken uh, weaken the, its position in the talks that it's having with the Colombian government. And so it sounds like uh, that was enough to to get the the leadership group to suspend their uh, negotiations. The Colombian government uh, has has accused ELN of uh, creating what they call an unnecessary crisis to just interrupt the uh, the talks. But so you know, I, I don't think this is insurmountable, but. Uh, this is the centerpiece of Gustavo Petro's uh, efforts to try and end all of Colombia's various uh, armed conflicts with with internal groups. Uh, ELN is the one of the largest, if not the largest, of them. Uh, you know, there's some criminal gangs that might be uh, nearly as big or, or you know on par, but but ELN's the definitely the uh, the, the plum, the, the centerpiece of this deal. So, uh, or this, this process. So, uh, it's certainly it's, uh, it, it's disconcerting to see the, uh, the talks get suspended. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Ecuador, which has backed out of a deal to send arms to Ukraine. Yes. Uh, the Ukrainian, uh, well, the Ecuadorian government, uh, announced uh, a few weeks ago that it was going to send, it's uh, dilapidated Soviet-era military hardware uh, to Ukraine. Now, I don't know how much of this stuff is actually still usable, probably not very much, but it could provide some spare parts or something for uh, the Ukrainian military's uh, hardware. Uh, so there was some value to this. And in return, uh, apparently the United States was uh, going to graciously offer the, the Ecuadorians uh, some swanky new U.S.-made. Uh, hardware to replace the stuff that they were sending. Uh, well, the Russian government got wind of this uh, plan and announced that it was uh, putting a ban on the importation of Ecuadorian bananas. Now, Ecuador happens to be Russia's largest banana supplier. 
So uh, the ban caused has has already caused uh, something of a banana panic in Russia, banana shortages. Um, but it also threatened hundreds of millions of dollars per year in export revenue for Ecuador. And so the Ecuadorians have decided a couple of weeks uh, after the Russians announced this embargo that they are not going to move forward with the uh, the military deal with Ukraine after all. Uh, and I believe the, the Russian government has already lifted the banana embargo. So maybe these two kids can, uh, can go back to, to getting along with each other. One can dream, Derek. And let's end, we haven't done this in a while, with a update from the new Cold War. And this is a positive update, Derek. Not only an update for the new Cold War, good news. We're ending on good news, happy news, uh, which is uh, almost unheard of for this show. The uh, Chinese government has apparently, as of Thursday, agreed to send a new pair of giant pandas to the San Diego Zoo uh, and is in You hear they're going to be named Derek and Danny. Uh, well, they should be, although I think they're a mating pair, so that would be a little weird uh, <laughs> would for it be me. Derek but, or would uh, it be perfect? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, the, the Chinese uh, Wildlife Conservation Association signed an agreement with the San Diego Zoo. It's also signed an agreement with the zoo in Madrid. Uh, in Spain, so uh, w- you know, and China has been for for a few years now, kind of pulling uh, its its pandas back home, and the pandas that it, it sort of loans out to these these Western zoos. Uh, it's been allowing the agreements under which it had was sending pandas to the, these places to lapse uh, in what was viewed as a, a sort of you know diplomatic uh, tugging of the leash, essentially. But but they're apparently reversing that policy, and so now there are uh, these deals with San Diego and Madrid. There are negotiations uh, going on with uh, the National Zoo in Washington D.C., uh, a zoo in Vienna, Austria, uh, that so that we could see uh, pandas going back to those places. It's uh, it's a nice thing. Pandas are nice; people like them. It gets people to go to the zoo. I like zoos. Uh, and uh, in addition, it's it's a a, a small indication that maybe the uh, the Cold War is thawing a bit uh that the frosty relationship between uh china and the u.s in particular is is maybe getting you know just a little bit uh less frosty which i think is is probably a good thing thank you derek and everyone uh please tune in to our bonus this week with mark ames we talk russia we talk ukraine and we'll see everyone again soon bye bye